The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you, each week I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. That's a, uh, a, that's a, that's a newsletter that really focuses on uh, primarily these days on gold and uh, gold mining companies and, of course, the macroeconomic picture. Uh, as well, also Trader Tracks, which focuses on uh, more on the futures markets, is uh, is written by Roger Wiegand and Chen Lin, uh, the brilliant stock picker, uh, publishes what is Chen buying, what is Chen selling, and Chen has had a remarkable track record, turning five thousand four hundred dollars of his wife's IRA account into something much more uh, meaningful, uh, um, well over. Uh, a million and a half dollars. So Chen has done very well over the last number of years, and what he does is shares his stock picking prowess with, with you, with uh, with his subscribers. And uh, Chen is on this show from time to time as well. Uh, so what is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? Trader Tracks and Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks all can be uh, tried. Uh, a sample trial is available at a lower price uh, by calling my assistant Claudio Bossi in New York at seven one eight four five seven fourteen twenty six. Seven one eight four five seven one four two six, and I like to tell you that the best website to go to to access this radio show, as well as everything else that I do, uh, the newsletters, all three of those newsletters I just mentioned, can be accessed from there as well. JayTaylorMedia.com. That's J A Y Taylor. Media.com. We do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And we also want to thank our sponsors for making this show logistically possible. For the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are Airway Energy, Eurostar Gold Corp., Liberty Silver Corp., and Eurasian Minerals. And Eurasian Minerals is joining us as a sponsor uh, this week. Uh, Eurasian Minerals is one of my top picks in my newsletter. It is a company that uh, is what they call a project generator uh, company. That is, it uses other people's money to drill and explore its properties. It gives up some of the uh, interest in those properties, but it can hold its powder dry. It doesn't need to dry. It doesn't need to issue a lot of shares to raise capital to drill expensive, high-risk holes in the ground. It gets other people to do that. Uh, but one of the things that I really like about Eurasian Minerals now is it has recently acquired... Bullion Monarch, which is a company that's throwing off some $6 million a year in royalty fees on a project that Newmont Mining is uh, producing gold from in Nevada. And that is a project, actually, uh, that has a lot of upside potential. Probably, uh, I think, the chances of revenues growing very substantially uh, from Bullion Monarch is very, very good going forward. So we welcome Eurasian Minerals, and, of course, as with all our sponsors, we'll be interviewing the company sometime in the near future. Well, today I've uh, titled our show, uh, From Economic Freedom to Fascism, Why Is It Happening in America? And I think that we'll gain some insights as to why it is happening when we talk to a couple of our main guests, Russ Baker. Uh, he's the best-selling author of a book called Family of Secrets, America's Invisible Government and the Hidden History of the Last 50 Years. 
his book, uh, Russell's, uh, Russell's book, uh, really deals with what President Kennedy warned about, namely the danger of a secret society, uh, and, and uh, also uh, what President Eisenhower warned about uh, when he warned about the military-industrial complex. Well, we see uh, in the Bush family, certainly, uh, in, and this is a book that is extremely well-written, extremely well-documented, uh, a factual account of the Bush family, what we what is not really made public, uh, but is well documented in this excellent book uh, that is written uh, by Russ Baker, Family of Secrets, America's Invisible Government, and the Hidden History of the Last 50 Years. Uh, I, I'll tell you this, I was reading the book this morning, and it was probably the most interesting book I've read in a long, long time. It certainly rivals The Creature from Jekyll Island in terms of its fascinating account of American political uh, power and uh, the powers behind the throne, uh, whereas this book, uh, where Russ Baker's book, really handles more the corporate side, oil and corporate interest, uh, rather than not as much on the Federal Reserve, not as much on the monetary interest. I do believe the monetary interests are the most important interest. If you take away the power of creating money from the Federal Reserve and give it to uh, the Congress, or better yet, in my view, uh, letting, uh, returning to a gold standard where money is created through profits rather than through the printing press, well, that would be the most democratic way to go in my view. Uh, we will, uh, hopefully I'll ask Russ Baker if he thinks there's any ties, uh, between the Federal Reserve and uh, one of the topics we will be talking, I think, to Russ about is the assassination of President Kennedy and, uh, some possible connections from Texas to that event. Uh, te- powerful interest in Texas that would include the uh, the Bush family, of course, and um, some other interest as well. Uh, going back into the Eisenhower years, fascinating account. You're not going to want to miss Russ Baker when I talk to him. Now, after uh, we are going to talk to Gene Epstein uh, after our first break today. Gene comes to us once a month to talk about, uh, well, some of his thoughts that he publishes in Barron's Magazine, but also the New York City Junto, and we'll get an update from Gene Epstein. And then after that, I'm going to talk to Dennis Marker. Uh, he is returning for the second time. He's written the book, 15 Steps to Corporate Feudalism. Dennis maintains that wealthy Americans have convinced America's middle class to eliminate themselves, and he names those 15 steps uh, taken towards that end. I do believe that Russ Baker's book, uh, that deals with the Bush family uh, is certainly um, ties in well with Dennis Marker's account. Uh, I would say that Russ Baker's book is really uh, an extremely well-documented book that is very, very factual, whereas Dennis Marker uh, certainly is factual but probably uh, draws some conclusions uh, that uh, may or may not be, uh, be true, but I think Dennis uh, makes a, a very good case for his point as well. Uh, the powerful interest trying to get the American middle class to behave themselves, as it were, uh, to keep uh, to keep them in their place, as it were. Both, I think, both accounts are very, very important. Uh, but I would say again, uh, I would highlight uh, Russ Baker's book, and uh, I think you're not going to want to miss Russ Baker at or around one o'clock New York time today. Uh, when he comes on to talk. Also, uh, in the second hour of today's show, Arch Crawford will be joining us again. Archie will be giving us his uh, fundamental, technical, and, of course, planetary view of the markets. And uh, I must say that Archie is not a raging bull. Uh, that is for sure. Well, it's hard to find too many raging bulls from any source these days, and I think the reason is because it's pretty obvious the markets are really in bad shape. I mean, let's just take a look at what's going on uh, in today's market. Now, the equity markets have bounced back. Earlier today, the Dow was down rather big. Uh, it's, it's down only 20 points right now. Uh, and the NASDAQ is actually up uh, 0.36%. The S&P is up just fractionally as well. We've had oil is down $1.16 today. Um, and I see the euro is down. The dollar is up, which isn't surprising. I suppose gold is up uh, $9.30 to $1,696. And, of course, when there's that flight to quality, as they like to say, uh, the U.S. Uh, bond is up as well marginally, and we're seeing a 1.09% interest rate for the 10-year bond. How ridiculous is that? Well, it's 1.09% only because the markets are manipulated by Mr. Bernanke and the Federal Reserve, and we've seen manipulation of the markets for many, many years. I mean, that is 
the modus operandi of our government is to intervene in markets. So anyone that calls this capitalism, well, they just simply don't know what they're talking about. This is anything but capitalism, what we have here. Ladies and gentlemen, let's call it for what it is. It is a fascist economy. Fascism, if economic fascism, if you describe it as government and corporations in bed together. And I think both Dennis Marker uh, and uh, uh, Russ Baker will certainly add credence to that notion that we, uh, that we are a fascist economic economy. Uh, I mean, uh, well, I think if you listen to what they have to say, it will be hard to dispute that uh, uh, that assertion. Well, as I mentioned, gold is up very nicely. Gold has really shown some strength this past week. Uh, is it because Mr. Bernanke is promising more QEs? Well, no doubt that has uh, provided some stimulus to it. But what I like to look at, and I think is still very, very important, it's much more important, and I think I'm the only one around that's talking about it, and that is what is the real price of gold? What is an ounce of gold by? And to me, that is more important because if you take on uh, the view, as I do, that uh, deflation, that we still have a huge amount of debt that has to be wrung out of the system, and in that process could come collapsing prices from all over, uh, from virtually every area of the economy. Uh, if you buy that idea, then it's very possible that gold could go down in nominal terms and still gain in purchasing power. Indeed, that's what happened after Lehman Brothers. After Lehman Brothers, as I repeat time after time on this show, an ounce of gold rose from uh, it would have purchased only 17% of the fund uh, in July of 2008, and then it rose to uh, 49%. Recently, it's backed off to about 43 or 44%. With that, the mining company profits have risen very, very dramatically uh, because the real price of gold has risen. Uh, the price of gold has risen relative to the other cost of getting it out, the, out of the ground. If you own gold, you own gold because it is wealth. It is pure wealth. It is what you can hold uh, and the politicians can't, well, they can take it away from you. They can confiscate it, as they did in the 1930s, but they can't take away the value of that ounce of gold. They can certainly uh, take away the value of your currency, and they are doing it on an ongoing, persistently ongoing basis. So um, you want to own gold as pure wealth. I say you want to own gold mining companies for profits, uh, If you and so you have to be selective. There's higher risk. There's also, I think, we're in a position now where we could start to see uh, some leverage on the price of gold with the gold shares because the profits have been strong, and I think they're going to get a lot better going forward, too, if, if my views of the economy are right. Of course, if we go into the other side of the equation, if we start having high levels of inflation, then I become a lot less optimistic about gold mining companies because there your costs could be actually going up faster uh, than, uh, than the price of the metal, and that's not a good recipe, of course, uh, generally speaking. Well, we, uh, I am looking at some gold mining companies that I cover in my, uh, in my newsletter, and I am very excited about some of them. Gold Quest is one of them that I'll mention. Uh, Gold Quest is a company that seems to be on to a major discovery in the Dominican Republic. Uh, and, uh, I, well, these kinds of discoveries, the kinds of intercepts that they're announcing, they don't, they don't come around that often. It's a gold and copper discovery with, uh, you know, 100, 200, 300, uh, well, not 300, but 200, 200 meters intersections of very high gold grades and very high copper grades. And, uh, well, several of these holes, and um, it's just been an amazing run so far. How big it is, we don't know yet. Uh, but that's one stock that I find is very, very, uh, very, very interesting, one that I own uh, and have had the f- good fortune of owning at, um, oh, nine cents to start the year. It's uh, got as high as a dollar eighty or dollar ninety or so, backed off a bit, uh, but one that I still feel, feel very bullish about. It's speculative, no doubt about it, and I would also like to just highlight uh, as well uh, Eurasian Minerals, which, as I noted earlier, has come on as a sponsor to the show, Eurasian Minerals, uh, is in a cash flow positive position now that they've acquired Bullion uh, Monarch and uh, a company. Well, there's a whole host of gold companies and new producers. Uh, Dynacor is another one that's a favorite. It's up very nicely, 10 or 11% today. So uh, I think it's looking extremely bullish. Uh, the gold picture is looking very, very good, I think, right now. No guarantees, of course, uh, but, uh, but from a fundamental point of view, real money as opposed to the fake stuff that they're requiring us to use by fiat. Well, uh, we are out of time for this segment. We've got to take our first break. And when we come back, we're going to have Gene Epstein with me. We're going to look to Gene to talk about some of his uh, ideas that were expressed in Barron's this past week. 
Uh, primarily want to ask him about the euro. He seems to be fairly bearish on the euro, and we're going to see uh, why that is so, and also ask him about the upcoming New York City Junto meetings, which are always uh, a monthly pleasure uh, for your host. Well, that's uh, we're going to go to break now, and when we come back, we'll be with Gene Epstein. Don't go away. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Eurostar Gold Corporation is re-examining well-known properties in Mexico using modern exploration knowledge and tools to access the riches that others only dreamed of. Eurostar has announced positive drilling results on all three of its Mexican gold properties in 2012. Drilling continues at the flagship El Antimonio property, where over 60% of Phase 1 drill holes have returned significant gold mineralization over wide intervals. Through its aggressive exploration strategy, experienced leadership, and loyal shareholder base, Eurostar is poised to give new life to valuable gold resources. Visit www.euristargold.com for more information. Is your business ready to get started in social media? If you've already made that plunge, where do you stand right now? Are you using it to stay ahead of your competition? Or are you feeling a bit lost? Tune in to Social Media Pearls with host Shirley Williams. Shirley and her guest experts are here to answer your questions as well as focus on areas where you should have questions. It's everything you've always wanted to know about using social media for business. It's Social Media Pearls, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Gene Epstein. He is uh, the um, he writes the economic beat column for Barron's, uh, and he also, um, I guess, reviews books for Barron's as well okay. from time okay. to time. So, uh, But I want to ask you, welcome, Gene. It's uh, good to have you back. Pleasure to be here. really want to ask you about your, uh, your column this past week in the mm-hmm. economic beat uh, titled More Downside for the Euro. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you, I guess you're not too optimistic about them getting things fixed anytime soon in Europe? Well, uh, you know, I begin uh, with a uh, quote uh, from uh, European Central Bank President Mario Draghi uh, made a month ago, and uh, I, I think we could probably posit uh, uh, an almost ironclad rule of investing that when a uh, public official uh, recommends a trade, uh, then you should uh, do the opposite. Uh, when a public official warns you against a trade, then you should certainly take the trade. And what happened is that President Mario Draghi uh, uh, frantically uh, declared in answer to a reporter's question, it's pointless to bet against the euro. It's pointless to go short on the euro. It's pointless because the euro will stay. Uh, now, that, to begin with, was a sort of a triumph of desperation over rationality, because even if the euro will stay in its present form, uh, it still uh, could be worth shorting. And uh, indeed, over the last year, anybody who'd shorted the euro would have uh, seen profits of about uh, 20% on his money. The euro has fallen. But also, in a political environment, it does appear that uh, when a, an official in that capacity makes such a declaration, then you do have a rhetorical rally. The euro has rallied since Draghi made that statement. But uh, it's difficult to believe that uh, that it's going to last. There are so many problems ahead for the euro uh, that uh, I think it's going uh, further down. Now, further down, I said specifically, 
against the dollar because that's the most convenient way for Barron's investors to go short the euro. And uh, one could say that the dollar versus the euro is a kind of a race to the bottom. My point uh, in the uh, column was only that the euro is uh, racing to the bottom much faster than the dollar is, and therefore uh, the dollar-euro uh, cross uh, relationship is a good one to trade. I think that the euro is probably euro is about a dollar. Can buy about a dollar twenty-five today. Yeah. It's probably going down to about a dollar ten, maybe as low as a dollar. It touched lows uh, in its history, in its short history. It's touched lows of about eighty-six, eighty-seven cents. Mm-hmm. So it could go even further down. Yeah, indeed, and and it would seem as though uh, we may see a turnaround in the euro because it is down very slightly today. I think. At, mm-hmm. uh, well, it was up. Yeah, it's been up a bit since uh, since I uh, spoke since I wrote about it on Friday. It's it's a, it's not ex- it's not exactly wheat. It's not quite a commodity. It's clearly a highly politicized instrument, and therefore it's subject to the buffetings of politics. But uh, the things that are going to happen over the next uh, month or two, the ways in which the euro might get battered, the the, the increasing likelihood that uh, that Greece is going down the tubes, the train wreck that's slowly occurring. It always operates slowly in politics because there's so much that that political officials do to slow that down. Uh, it uh, it will happen. Uh, we're going to find the Germans increasingly uh, unhappy uh, with uh, what is happening in, in Europe. We're going to find the Bundesbank, uh, that's the central bank of Germany, expressing increasing misgivings about the European Central Bank buying uh, the debt of countries that won't be able to repay uh, that debt. Uh, the, the political storm clouds are going are to continue to form. And over the next 12-month period, I would say that anybody who wants to short the euro should have that kind of time horizon. Uh, you know, look at it every month or two and uh, and see how it inches down. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's interesting to note, uh, Gene, that I think a lot of corporations are not buying the notion that things are going to be fixed. In fact, mm-hmm. I I noticed um, uh, it was in the New York Times. I think maybe it was uh, I don't know it was this weekend sometime mm-hmm. when there was an article about how U.S. corporations are planning actually for an exit of Greece. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, like 80% of um, of American corporations that have some interest in Greece are looking to uh, mm-hmm. uh, to find a way out of there. You know, so it yes. seems to me the mm-hmm. confidence level, and that's the market talking, not the politicians, of course. So yes. very interesting. The other thing I'd like mm-hmm. to say, though, I agree with you what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I'm old enough to remember, uh, probably older than you, Gene, mm-hmm. remember the fixed rate uh, system and how there would be a run on currencies and how the bank, central bankers and politicians would just swear by they're going to hold, hold up yeah. their currency or keep it from rising, whatever the case would be. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, that was a sure bet at that time to go the opposite way as well. So what you're saying yeah. is, is absolutely uh, consistent with my experience in uh, going way back. You know, I, uh, I tried to dig this one up. I think the biggest and the most pathetic moment was, uh, and I couldn't verify this, but I, actually I may even be older than you. We'll have to compare notes on that one maybe in a minute or two. But uh, I think it was Richard Nixon when he was president who said something to the effect that if he had a few extra dollars, he would buy the stock market. One of the dumbest things uh, any president <laughs> said, the stock market immediately got very jittery when he made that remark. Uh, but indeed, uh, it, in this case, you know, it's, it's really two categories where politicians resolve to stay the course, but here's a case in which uh, Mario Draghi is simply telling investors it's pointless to go short on the euro. Don't go short the euro. He's talking about an actual trade that he's warning you against. Uh, that's yeah. a sure sign uh, that you uh, might uh, try to go shorting, uh, try to short the euro. And his reason was just absolutely asinine, as you suggest, because, uh, well, you know, now, as you, you here to stay in its present form, Greece is probably, probably exiting the euro, but even if it is here to stay in its present form, it doesn't mean it couldn't go back to 86, 87 cents, which is where it was uh, in uh, about 10 years ago. Oh, yeah, Gene, you also... Um you also review books for Barron's. Yeah. Anything you've seen recently that you that you like a lot? Yes. Well, I'm the I'm the book review editor, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I occasionally write reviews for the space. Barron's uh, reviews books uh, in the first issue published each month, mm-hmm. and uh, I edit those reviews. I commission the the books to be reviewed. I commission the reviewers, and uh, again edit the reviews, and occasionally uh, write reviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a uh, there's an excellent uh, book uh, being reviewed by. Uh, Mary O'Grady, who's a, uh, an op-ed columnist for the Wall Street Journal, 
Uh, I had her uh, review uh, The Clash of Economic Ideas, a marvelous book mm. by, Laren, by Professor Lawrence White uh, about the history of the last hundred years and the clash uh, of economic ideas over that hundred years. He mentions John Kenneth Galbraith frequently. Of course, he goes over the Keynes-Hayek debate. He talks about economics as a clash of ideas, as indeed it has been. I myself have, um, have written a review but didn't run it yet of, of also a book that I, I think is a must-read by somebody named Una McDonald, a woman who was a, an, an MP in, in, from the British Labour Party in England who's written a book of, about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and about mm. the financial crisis in the U.S. She's hardly a political ideologue, hardly an anti-government ideologue being from the Labour Party, but she's absolutely explicit, lays it on the line about the role and responsibility of the politicians uh, in causing the financial crisis. I'll be reviewing that book. My review will appear in a few weeks um, for that one. Uh, now, as I mentioned, I'm also, uh, as you mentioned, I'm also a master of ceremonies at Junto, which right. uh, meets every month. Um, and I'd like to uh, hope that people, at least from the uh, from the New York area, come to Junto. That's a uh, uh, 20 West 44th Street. Uh, the meeting is this Thursday night at 7:30. And for the most of the, the first part of that meeting, we're going to be hosting Governor uh, Gary Johnson, who is the candidate for president on the Libertarian Party. And uh, I'm going to ask uh, Gary Johnson uh, th the first question, which will be: uh, Is Obama the lesser? evil or is Romney the lesser evil uh, in his view you can make a, a case equally for the one or the other right. and uh, that's why he suggests that you vote for him and well I, I think I would probably be inclined, inclined to think that somebody said uh, don't vote for the for the don't vote for either of the main candidates all you do is encourage the rascals so I think they used a different word than that but encourage the rascals uh, don't vote, don't vote for Obama or Obama yeah just yeah I mean you're the lesser of two evils why do we have to vote for any evil let's go for for what is right and good and according to the Constitution, I would say, unless you disagree with our Constitution. And uh, it seems to me that, um, well, from I think we've been straying from it for a long time. Certainly that's the view of Ron Paul. And if we had gone back and our state to uh, the Constitution, we wouldn't have nearly the problems we have now. If you disagree uh, with our Constitution, then push uh, for an amendment to the Constitution. That's the constitutional process. You know, that's the way it's supposed to be, but it seems that uh, the courts have sort of found their own way to change the Constitution. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes left here yet. Uh, your view, then, uh, generally speaking, on U.S. economy as an economist. Well, again, I've repeated myself, I guess, uh, ad nauseum. We saw a, a number uh, this morning uh, about the manufacturing, domestic manufacturing sector, uh, a very uh, meaningful number on how the manufacturing sector is doing, and it suggested uh, that it's about flat. And when manufacturing is about flat, not growing, not contracting, uh, then uh, it correlates with uh, pretty much what we've had, 2% growth. Yeah. And so, again, it's, it's, uh, it's not a bang, it's not a whimper. It's uh, something very boring, very mediocre. It's, uh, it's very slow growth in the economy, maybe uh, easily about one-third of what it should be in a normal uh, expansion, in a normal recovery. But uh, I neither, I don't foresee a boom and uh, I don't foresee a bust. Um, I, I, we, we're continually getting numbers confirming that the economy is keeping its head above water and uh, inching along at a very slow one and one and a half to two percent rate of growth. Right. With uh, 30 seconds left, then um, I guess the Obama people are arguing uh, really that. Um, things are better than they were when he took office. Yes or no well, on that one? Yes, I, I gather that they have said that things are better than they were when he took office, and uh, I, I'm not very impressed by that statement. Uh, I just wonder and, if they're considering the amount of debt that's been added to the balance sheet. Yeah, you could you, uh, absolutely, in lots of ways they're worse, but, uh, but if they are better, then I can only say that uh, the evidence is overwhelming that it's occurred not because of Obama but despite Obamanomics, and to the extent that Obamanomics has made a contribution, it's been a drag on economic progress. Thank you very much, Gene. We are out of time. Look forward sure. to seeing you at the New York City Junto uh, this coming Thursday mm -hmm. at 20 West 43rd? 44th Street. 44th Street. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much, Gene. Don't go Thank away, you. folks. We're going to be right back with Dennis Marker, who will talk about his book, 15 Steps to Corporate Feudalism. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurostar Gold Corporation is re-examining well-known properties in Mexico using modern exploration knowledge and tools to access the riches that others only dreamed of. Eurostar has announced positive drilling results on all three of its Mexican gold properties in 2012. Drilling continues at the flagship El Antimonio property, where over 60% of Phase 1 drill holes have returned significant gold mineralization over wide intervals. Through its aggressive exploration strategy, experienced leadership, and loyal shareholder base, Eurostar is poised to give new life to valuable gold resources. Visit www.euristargold.com for more information. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, Insights. Call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for a second time Dennis Marker. Dennis is the author of 15 Steps to Corporate Feudalism. Uh, He started his career in Washington, D.C. at the age of 21. There he worked for the U.S. Congress, uh, the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, various political campaigns, and Jim Wallace at Sojourners Magazine. In addition, he helped launch and directed Washington, D.C.-based progressive nonprofits, including Witness for Peace and the Pledge of Resistance. This work uh, took him from every country in Central America to Iraq, among others, where he negotiated with government officials and non-governmental organizations looking for ways to avoid war and limited civilian casualties. Uh, Dennis has appeared on numerous network and cable television shows and talk shows on the U.S. Uh, in the United States, Canada, Mexico, Australia, and throughout Europe. In addition, he has written, edited, and been uh, the on-air voice for weekly UPI syndicated political radio commentary. Welcome, Dennis, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. It's really good to have you back. Hi, Jay. Thanks. It's great to be with you again. Well, I know it's. Uh, we've had you on before to talk about this book, and we just didn't have time to get through all of it. Uh, but you are now, I think, off to the Democratic uh, Convention. Uh, and um, tell us a little bit about that and what your expectations are there. Well, um, what I'm doing is bringing my message, which is the message that the U.S. middle class is being systematically eliminated. And so <clears throat> I guess my expectations are to get that message out to more people. Um, obviously, in some places in the Democratic Party, they're not going to want to hear this at all. In other places, they will. And so, sure. that's <laughs> that's where it is. Well, that's good. And you're going to uh, you're, you're going to tell people what you believe, and that's what I like about you, Dennis. Is I know that you're sincere and and you stick to those core values, which is what I always like to see. Even if we may not agree on every single point, uh, I think the attitude and the desire to get uh, a good life for most people. 
the American people, the middle class, and you and I both agree that we have seen a demolition. I mean, who who can't agree with that? Even even those that are doing the demolishing will admit will admit that. And we want to talk about who those people are and how they brought it about, and perhaps for some of their motives. But um, how, you talk about the feudal uh, corporate feudalism. Uh, the name of your book. Um, uh, the name of your book is The 15 Steps to Corporate Feudalism. And uh, how might this corporate feudalism differ from, let's say, the feudalism that most people remember reading about in their history books from the Middle Ages and into the colonial period of time? Well, I think, obviously, some of the differences are <clears throat> where we are in terms of technology. Um, people have access to more information, but not necessarily better information. But I uh -huh. think... What I like to talk about is the similarities, and, and the main similarity is that you have a small group. It used to be so differences. It used to be family-centered um, corporate, or I'm sorry, feudal lords, and now what we're getting are corporate-centered feudal lords. And, and, and by that, what, they, what the feudal lords in the past did, and what we're seeing more and more now, is that these giant corporations and their owners control all of the wealth. And, and they use that wealth, of course, to buy the political power. And so mm -hmm. just like what we had in earlier feudal times, you have a small group of people that control the wealth and use that wealth to control the power. So right. if you go back to Robin, the Robin Hood story, you have, of course, the, the, you know, the, the, um, the landed gentry, the feudal lords, and, and who controls the government? Those people do. And that's what sure. we're doing now. Sure, sure, with corporates. Uh, so it's, it's more depersonalized, though, almost, at least if, if before it was the families, and the families would presumably know the people that were working and the people that were the servants would know them, whereas here this corporatism that we have now seems to be almost more depersonal and uh, depersonalized from, from the old feudal systems. Is, do you think that might be fair to say? Well, sure, partly based just on the numbers. I mean, if you consider yeah. now a corporation can have employees all around the world. And, and so, so that's different. And, and also, I think actually, you know, the the amount of wealth and obviously the ability to, to have now it used to be you had one palace. Now, now you can have these palatial mansions all around the world. And they do. So, and these. Oh, and they do. But one of the key similarities is in the old days you had these feudal lords who taxed the poor to live their extravagant lifestyles. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing more and more the same thing where the mm -hmm. people at the top pay nothing, and, and they tax, basically, they use their power to tax everyone else. Sure. Who, again, lead their, 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 their lavish lifestyles. Right. So we've seen this, of course, carried out over the last number of years when the big bankers got bailed out and the guys kept their big bonuses and their mansions on the uh, on, on the coast of you know on Long Island coast and Fifth Avenue and various places. So these people have continued to live well, and the debt then has been burdened. Uh, the middle class has been burdened with, of course, is part of what you're. I think part of what you're talking about. But it, of course, it goes back further than that uh, a long time, and we want to uh, to examine some of the some of the dynamics that you talk about in your book. Uh, what can we expect then in terms of uh, liberty, freedom, freedom of speech, material prosperity? Is it a continual, you see a continual decline in those, those aspects that made America really a great place? No question. Um, I think every one of those that you mentioned, you can see a decline. And, and we're seeing it now. We're seeing this, you know, more and more this two-tiered system where where a few people control more and more of the wealth, and they use that wealth to control the power in our electoral system. They spend their millions and billions, if they have to, to put in power people who will do what they want. And, and they own the media, so they control the debate. And, and so, yes, I would expect li less liberty and less free speech and less economic opportunity if we continue down this path. Dennis, you mentioned the difference now is the technology, and the technology takes us to the uh, well, well, to the um, to the media. Certainly, the media, and, and one of the steps that you mentioned in your book towards this feudalism was control of the media. But uh, in uh, subtitled your book is how the rich convinced America's middle class to eliminate themselves. Uh, that implies that there is a sort of a groupthink mechanism in place to encourage average people to peacefully hand over the country to those who have marketed uh, themselves as, say, the Ivy League ruling elite who know what's good for us. Is that a fair characteristic of, of what's going on here? 
I think definitely. I think that um, if, if you look at it seriously throughout history, um, any period in history, you always have people in power obviously working together to promote their own interests. I call it the pre-planning of the rich. Mm-hmm. And, and so what I outline in the book is this, this very real situation that took place 30 years ago, three decades ago, where up until this period, you needed, and technology is what you were asking about, um, you needed a middle class. Even the people at the top needed an American middle class. Mm-hmm. And, and that was because I mean, they needed those workers not only to create the products but also to buy the products. Mm-hmm. But what technology brought, one of the things technology brought that nobody thought about at the time, or at least the middle class didn't think about, was that because of improved international communication and improved international transportation, you had a situation where you could actually make your product anywhere in the world and sell it anywhere in the world and make your profit and no longer needed that American worker who previously was needed and so they could demand middle-class wages. Right. So you could say, oh, I can hire a person in China. I can hire a person somewhere else for a dollar a day, $3 a day to make my product, bring it to the U.S. and sell it at minimum wage or sell it in India or sell it in China, and I'm still making my profit. So I simply Mm -hmm. say I don't need the American worker. I'm just going to basically he's he's expendable and I'm not going to worry about him. Yeah. But then the, the question is how to get rid of that middle class once that it is here and expects it, that believes it's, that um, it deserves to be here. Mm-hmm. And, and so that gets to your question about what I call, you know, convincing the middle class to eliminate themselves, which is the 15 right. steps that I outlined. Right, and we want to get to that as well. But I'm just thinking now in terms of what's going on in the current economy, one of the problems that we have is a, a lack of demand from that middle class that you're talking about that was always needed was needed in the past. I hear what you're saying about the need not to hire America's middle class any longer, and certainly uh, technology has also allowed fewer workers to get the same amount of job, uh, same amount of work done in many cases. Uh, the, the Internet and uh, computers and so forth have also made it net less necessary to to have as many people working all of that I, I definitely agree with you is is in play now but are we not uh, also this stagnant economy that we have now that can't seem to get moving would you not agree that a good part of that has to do with the 70 percent of the america's uh the, the american consumer the 70 percent of the economy is the american consumer and he is just flat broke on his back do you see that oh definitely but but I separate that from the people at the top because if you actually look at these, what I call the corporate feudalists, these giant corporations are sitting on more wealth themselves than in the history of the world. So while the U.S. worker has been, has been dropped out of the equation, meaning that the U.S. worker's buying power is dropped out of the equation, that these corporations are simply making their product somewhere else and selling it somewhere else. Right. They're still making their profits. So right. not only are the people at the top not hurting, they're doing better than ever. It's just that our middle class is being eliminated. And, and I don't yeah. expect that to change. I mean, you know, we talk now, Mitt Romney's saying I'm going to create 12 million more jobs. Well, if he does, it's only going to be because people are willing to work for less. And it's the right. same with the Democrats. You know, at this point, politically, there is no advantage to the people who are, who are paying, you know, creating the, giving the money to buy the politicians to enhance our middle class. It's not in anyone's interest except for the middle class themselves, and they don't have any power right now. Right. No, it's, it's, uh, it's absolutely true, and I'm seeing that really there's less capital, though, going into America uh, to build uh, jobs, to make, you know, to expand. So the guys, uh, the, the large corporates are, are definitely making huge, huge profits. That's true. You're absolutely right. The profits are, are, are as good or better than ever. And that top one percent that uh, that we talk about having a huge amount of uh, the, the nation's wealth. I'd like you to try to give us uh, our listeners a little perspective on. The redistribution of wealth, I believe that uh, somewhere along in the late 60s, early 70s, the middle class sort of reached their zenith in the United States. I don't know if you have a time frame for that. We did talk to a former Federal Reserve um, officer here on the show not long ago, and I think those were the sort of the time frames that he was giving, and he agrees very much that the middle class is really getting, uh, is being eliminated. But do you have a, could you give our listeners some sense of how much uh, has been redistributed, how much wealth and income 
uh, has been redistributed from the middle class to the, let's say, the top 10% and then maybe the top 1%? Sure. The, the second chart in my book, I actually go through because it's a fascinating chart, and it shows wealth distribution all the way from 1917 until, well, the, the most recent numbers I could get really 2008 that were accurate. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, you can see the trend so obviously and clearly. And what it shows is up until the Great Depression, the top 10% were controlling well over 45% of the wealth, up to about 50% of all the wealth in the nation. At the period of the Great Depression, that number dropped down into the 30% range, 30s, mm-hmm. and it stayed in the 30s all the way until, you see it real clearly, like around 1980. In 1980, uh-huh. you see this dramatic shift, and that shift continues right up until the wealth distribution now is what it was before the Great Depression. And, and it, I mean, you look at this chart and you go, wow. So you see this, it's basically a flat line. You know, we'd say in, in the medical TV shows, you see the flat line. Well, it's pretty yeah. much a flat line all the way from the end of the Great Depression until um, the... Around 1980. And then, so, so that's when the actual change started pl- taking place. But I think that clearly to get to that change, this was in the works for a few years. So I don't disagree with um, the guest you were talking about who said, you know, the height of the... the end of the golden year of the middle class when we started decline was you know they started at least working on this in the 70s but by by 80 they put out this program they call it reaganomics and and it really was just wealth distribution to the top Uh well we want to get into some of the steps that you talk about here uh ronald reagan i believe you believe that was a turning point uh, certainly, we saw tax cuts uh, for for people across the board, but especially the wealthy had tax cuts. Uh, my sense of that was that I mean, my own my own feeling about that, and you can say what you think for sure. But my own sense is that there probably is some truth to uh, supply side economics. That is, if you cut taxes, uh, we did see revenues growing during that period of time for government. However, it seems to me that what Mr. Reagan did was just go go nuts on the on the military spending and uh, and government spending would you agree or disagree with that well well first i want to say clearly in my view reagan was just the mouthpiece i i never blame him he he was the salesman and i agree with you there i think uh, there were powers behind the throne obviously and there still are that that control what the president of the united states does but yeah i would yeah Mm -hmm. okay so 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 that said um i think that the problem that we got into, and one of the things I talk about is it was a comprehensive plan. What we call the Reagan Revolution or Reaganomics was a comprehensive plan. And these 15 steps I, I outlined, well, some of them they'd wanted to, you know, do away. I mean, there's a lot of this that people had wanted. The top, people at the top never wanted a middle class. And so it's not like they just all of a sudden realized they didn't want a middle class. But those three changes I mentioned, um, the you know, all of a sudden – um, you no longer, you know, you could actually do away with the middle class, and then you launch these 15 steps. And so it was the combination of the 15 steps. And I actually say in the book that if you try to do just one or two of these, say global free trade, let's let's go with global free trade, or, or let's go, you know, any one of these individual steps, even controlling the media, it's not going to get the job done. But if you do it all at once, this big comprehensive program, people don't even know where to look, and that's why it was called a revolution. Yeah. So it was, it was the combination of these steps. And so if you take one step and say, well, you know, do I, well, if you ask, do I think trickle-down can work? Or, uh, you know, I don't. And, and, and part of the reason that I say that is I just look at our own history and I look at the history of the countries that have thriving middle classes, and they all have a tax structure that's weighted toward taxing people who make a lot more, more. Um, a more progressive tax structure. More progressive tax structure. And, and so right. the idea with Reagan was we're all in this together, which, first off, isn't true. I am not in it with the head of Exxon or the head of <laughs> That's true. Santa. And so we're not all in this together. And when we had a more progressive tax system, we had a stronger middle class. We also had the, the greatest number of wealthy people. So it's not like this tax structure made people at the top not do enough or not be productive enough. The opposite is true. There were, we had more millionaires than anyone else. We had you know, loads of wealth at the top, but we still also had a stronger middle class. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, we uh, certainly did, and we. Uh, it seems to me that a good part of the problem has to do with the uh, with the monetary situation, where bankers and there's easy money to be had by banks, which can then uh, dole it out and finance all all manner of uh, of military and private uh, spending. But uh, I, let's get to some of your uh, steps. That I, I agree, we're, we're very instrumental in uh, in pulling this off and, and reducing the middle class. But step one, controlling the media. How has that been achieved, and what has been the result? I, I happen to believe that this is one of the most key uh, issues of those steps, because if you can control the way people think, uh, because you know I think the masses of people don't Americans don't have any idea what's going on and why why what's going on is going on, why they're being poor. And I think the media does a great job of keeping them confused and, and, and not understanding this. But how did how was the media controlled uh, and, you know, what – could you just comment on that? Sure. First off, my first comment is you're exactly right. The reason I put that as the first step in the book is because I think that is, you know, it is essential. And in terms of yeah. how this was done 30 years ago when, when they started this the whole Reaganomics program – they first off deregulation. They simply said um, one corporation or one individual can own much more, basically as much as you can afford, of the media. That used to be controlled much more. Another thing they got rid of was something called the fairness doctrine. And the idea with the fairness doctrine and on issues where we don't know the answer, such is there weapons of mass destruction in Iraq before the Gulf War, which was so expensive to us, you had to cover both sides. They got rid of that. So they simply said, if you want to, you can just be a propaganda arm. You can just cover one side all the time. That's yeah. fine. It, uh-huh. during, during the Reagan Revolution, they had something called the Office of Public Diplomacy. And, and this actually was a government-paid media monitor, and they would monitor stories, not for accuracy, but whether or not they met the Reagan administration at that time's view of what they wanted covered. Wow. This didn't have anything to do with it. So that had a huge um, thing. And the other thing they started doing was talking about, it was, they started this whole thing of liberal bias. We have a liberal media. Well, mm-hmm. one of the things Thomas Jefferson said when, when, he, you know, when he talked about the idea of democracies, he said you have to have an informed public. Yes. And so if you want to get, you know, and in the mainstream media 30 years ago wasn't great, but at least they had this idea of trying, at least, at least whether they did or not, the idea was to, to report the truth. Mm-hmm. And and what happened, they started, they changed it. I call it from went from the truth standard to the balance standard. And so now our media, its only job is to report both sides of a story. So mm-hmm. if the president says the moon is made of green cheese, the other side says it's not, no one is supposed to go out and find out if the moon is made of green cheese. It's simply what he said, she said, or he said, he said. Right, and, right. And so, what, what has happened over 30 years of hearing that the media is biased, of course, is you've convinced people not to, to believe it. So even if the story's true, nobody knows. Right. And so we have a population that is anything but an informed public. And I believe that's completely intentional, and it plays right into the hands of, of conning people into, as I said, in this case, conning people into eliminating themselves, eliminating the middle class. Well, to what extent do you believe uh, that the Internet is, uh, is helping to provide some objectivity and some truth in, uh, in some of these issues? I mean, it's certainly you can go to the Internet and also on, the, on cable television there are certain channels that I believe uh, provide a view of things that we don't get, let's say, in the mainstream media in the U.S., like um, you know, the, main, the main networks, for example, which are obviously owned and controlled by, uh, by the corporate state. But to what extent do you think the Internet gives us some hope, and to what extent do you think that is uh, likely to be taken away from us? <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Well, so I, I would say surely early on it gave hope, and it still gives hope. You can now find the information if you have the time and the education to actually dig through. But sure. The, the more po- you know, obviously the more and more popular the Internet got, the more that – that people who like controlling things have have worked very hard to put up false information, and you know, and so sure. it's harder to get that information. And I think as the internet, you know, as it is more powerful, it will be more controlled. And, and so that, you know, we had, a, I think we, it's kind of like we had this moment where, yeah. where you could really get information. But okay, it's kind of like, oh, something slipped. Let's get a handle on that. And so right. we see laws and regulations that are constantly being um, 
propose that in one way or another are going to limit internet. They're going to, you know, they're going to um, basically say that the large corporation has a lot more bandwidth and can do a lot more with it. And you know, there's all sorts of different ways to to limit access, and that's what's being worked on now. Folks, the name of the book is 15 Steps to Corporate Feudalism, How the Rich Convinced America's Middle Class to Eliminate Themselves. Dennis and I have talked about the first of 15 steps. We're almost out of time. There wouldn't be time to talk about 14. We'd need 14, probably would need 14 half-hour sessions to do that. Uh, Dennis, tell our listeners how they can uh, buy this book, 15 Steps to Corporate Feudalism. The best way is to go to my website, which is the15steps.com. And I sell autographed copies and pay for shipping. And um, you can get a, you know, get it other places, but I say might as well go to my website, and that's it, the15steps.com. Go to your website, and you'll get an autographed copy and um, a very nice uh, and free delivery, which you probably may not get depending on where you buy it elsewhere. Uh, there's so much more to talk about. We do have a few more minutes yet, so let's talk about a couple of the others. Uh, you certainly talk about... Um, you show a chart in your book also that shows the deficits run under various presidents, I think starting maybe with Jimmy Carter. And the Republicans have been have had an abysmal track record in terms of stacking up debt in the U.S. Uh, in the U.S. Treasury. Uh, Bush one uh, was outdone by Bush two. Of course, Bush one outdid Reagan, who had record budget deficits there as he uh, as he more than spent the additional tax revenues that came in for the military industrial complex uh, and the programs that were put into place there uh, Clinton had a better record for sure I would argue though that uh, that Clinton uh, that the uh, decline in or the, actually ran a surplus in a year or so there that that was uh, to a great extent the good luck that he had with a with a surging stock market that brought in tremendous amounts of profits. We're having our current president is running huge deficits right now. Would you say that? I mean, I don't know what my thought is that some of this has to do as much as anything with the time they happen to be president. For example, I don't think Barack Obama's huge deficits are his fault anymore. Uh, you know, th- I don't think they're necessarily his fault uh, any more than Clinton's surpluses was his fault. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, one of the things I – the reason I put that in the chart, because especially there's this myth about Reagan, which is when this whole concept of, of you know, giving tax cuts to the rich is, or, or giant corporations is somehow going to help the middle class. And, they, and then the idea was that they created the, – you know, the Reagan myth was this great prosperity. But what the chart clearly shows is, is the Reagan myth was simply running up a huge deficit, and, and he was the first one to do that. And, and so – and, and that's like me having, you know, having a check, checking account with no money in it, but they, people keep accepting my checks. And yes. so before Reagan, nobody knew this. And so he said, oh, the Reagan economic miracle. Well, when you look at the chart, you say, oh, the Reagan economic miracle was he figured out how to just start writing checks and not pay for them. And, and so that's no miracle at all. That's the beginning of the end of the middle class. And in, in terms of the, you know, one of the things that this chart does in my mind is it does put – Sort of, to, you know, it sort of shows is not true. The idea, if you raise taxes on the rich, it will somehow hurt the economy or raise the deficit. Because what you can clearly see is that's what Bill Clinton did. One of the things Clinton did, and it was a huge controversy at the time, he actually raised taxes. Not a lot, not anywhere near where I think they should be yeah. for people at the top. But he raised yeah. taxes on the rich, and the deficit went down. And that's one of the things that this chart shows me. Yeah. Well, I do know that also during that time we had a, an extremely booming stock market that helped to bring revenues in, too. So I think that was part of the pro, part of the issue. But I, you're absolutely right. And, and one thing I certainly I think you and I would both agree on is that if you put money in the hands of the middle class, they'll spend it. If you put money in the hands of the rich, the super rich, they just buy more condos and more 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 of everything luxury items. And it doesn't really get through the economy. So I think you know, I mean, that was a Keynesian idea that I do, even though I'm not a Keynesian by any means. That is one of the concepts that I think Lord Keynes talked about that is absolutely true. The propensity to consume among people that don't have very much uh, is much greater than the propensity to consume. And if you have just a bunch of people that are uh, that are hoarding money and not doing anything constructive with it, uh, there's, of course, there's a whole other issue that uh, 
uh, of free market economics that we're not going to talk about because we're out of time already, and I should shut my mouth because there's so much more for you to say. Privatizing government was a, a step six uh, of the 15 steps, and, and that's one that I really – We've had other guests on this show talk about, uh, one guest talked about how the prisons were privatized, for example. You let the corporate interests that have an influence in government, and then guess what you do? You round up the uh, the poor black kids in Los Angeles and accuse them of, of drug trafficking or one thing or another, and they can't afford a lawyer, and you put them in jail, and these guys are getting thirty-five, forty, $45,000 a year for each of these kids they lock up. I mean, that kind of thing. I don't know. Um, deregulation of American business. You talked, you touched on that, certainly um, on the in the media. Um, but there's so much more, folks. And it's, this is really, whether you agree, and I don't agree with every part, a point that Dennis makes, but I think he's he's right about most of this stuff. And um, uh, at least uh, it, it is really a great book for food for thought. And Dennis, you're off to the to the convention, to the Democratic convention, right? Yeah, they they might hang me there, but I don't think so. I think I think you'll yeah the Republican yeah yeah no I think you'll find I I think you'll find a lot of friends there. I mean, if there's one thing about the Democratic Party in terms of liberty and justice and and equality, I think that's a theme that rings true in the Democratic Party. Um, I I probably am more of a Republican, though I won't vote for Romney. I'll probably write in Ron Paul. Uh, and you're more of a Democrat, and you're not happy with things in the Democratic Party. I think there's an awful lot of common grounds that Americans need to come together on. One of the issues that uh, that I might have more disagreement with you on has to do with getting people to hate their governments. Um, I hear what you're saying, and I believe you're right. I think that the media has gotten, like, say, Fox, uh, has gotten people to hate the government. Um, but my sense is that the government does a pretty good job of getting people to hate them just by their actions, and I'm, I'm wondering if you'd have a comment on that. For example, once Ron Paul told me, he said, um, you know, if you get government, if, if you have less government, people tend to get, come together because if you tax one group of people to give to the others, you have people not liking each other. If you regulate one group of people that helps one and hurts the other, then you have people not, not liking each other. Do you think there's anything to that argument? Well, I think there's a lot of reason not to like our current government. But what yeah. I do is I'll go back to our past government where we had a stronger middle class and people liked the government mm-hmm. a lot more. And I'll, sure. to, you know, I'll go back to the, my ideas, places where we have a strong middle class now. And uh-huh. you know, whether you want to talk my, you know, Sweden or Denmark or places like that where my ancestors came from, where mm-hmm. actually people have a lot that, that, you know, they respect the fact that their government does good things for them. The problem with our yes. government, they tax us and do very little good for us. They give all the money to the people at the top. Yes, so there you go. There's reason not to like it. But it's there not you go. government, the idea of government is bad. It's, it's because of what we've let our government become. That's a good good note to end it on, Dennis. I think you and I are in total agreement with that, and we're talking about the, the ruling elite that managed to pick our pockets and take care of themselves, consolidate their wealth, consolidate their power. And when we talk about the ruling elite, certainly one of the most uh, dominant families in that uh, uh, among the ruling elite would be the Bush family. And uh, we are going to be talking next, uh, after the break, we're going to be talking to Russ Baker. Uh, and I think he will confirm much of what Dennis Marker just had to say. Russ Baker uh, has written a book called Family, uh, Family Secrets, The Bush Dynasty, America's Invisible Government, and the Hidden History of the Last 50 Years. It should be a fascinating discussion, and I think will uh, will uh, dovetail very well with what we just heard from Dennis Marker. Dennis Marker, again, uh, if people, you should read his book, The 15 Steps to Corporate Feudalism, and you need to go to the15steps.com, either the number 15 or spell it out, the15steps.com to order his book. I really suggest you do that because there's a lot of really good stuff in there. Thank you very much, Dennis, for being with us, and I hope we can do it again sometime soon. And have fun at the convention. (laughs) Thanks a lot, and thanks for having me on, Jay. Uh, Take care. All the best. Folks, don't go away. We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. 
Eurostar Gold Corporation is re-examining well-known properties in Mexico using modern exploration knowledge and tools to access the riches that others only dreamed of. Eurostar has announced positive drilling results on all three of its Mexican gold properties in 2012. Drilling continues at the flagship El Antimonio property, where over 60% of Phase 1 drill holes have returned significant gold mineralization over wide intervals. Through its aggressive exploration strategy, experienced leadership, and loyal shareholder base, Eurostar is poised to give new life to valuable gold resources. Visit www.eurostargold.com for more information. Are you tired of the government squandering your tax dollars on bailouts and overpaid bureaucrats? On Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Mike Beitler and his guests explain why big government regulations are the problem and innovative businesses and free markets are the solution. Listen to Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Network. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repro. 